rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am, will, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, stuck, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And so the, the first thing I would just note in this, in this passage, this ending of the letter, it's interesting that Paul, what he's saying is, you've got to re realize that Paul is writing from prison. He's in prison. He's in prison for the very thing he's doing, for telling people about Jesus. Imagine if you went on a missionary trip, and, you and you, in your mind, you think about what it's going to be like, right? You're going to tell everyone about Jesus, and who knows, and I'm going to eat, eat, eat new foods, and I'm going to have new experiences, how many of you guys would ever put this into your game plan and then get put in prison? Right? He's on this missionary trip and he ends up in prison. How would that, if you're honest, I, am, am I, I, would, I would do this little reflection myself. How would that affect your attitude? It would pretty much bum me out. It would discourage me. I'd be frustrated. I'm, I might start having a pity party. Anyone ever have a pity party here besides me? I would go into pity party mode, like, why is this happening? God, why? But he doesn't do that, at least in this letter. He turns it around. Here's something that we realize about Paul, that Paul sees what he's doing as a kingdom mission. He sees this as the purpose of his life. My life, the purpose of my life, the value of my life, the, 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 the focus of my life is this kingdom mission to tell people about Jesus and to see them grow to maturity, he says. That's his focus. Mature believers are more focused on the kingdom mission than on the American dream. Or whatever dream would have been presented to Paul as this is what it looks like to live a glorious life. And so there's this kingdom mission that he's talking about, and he starts it off in an interesting way, I would say a weird way. He goes, now, I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice in my suffering. Think about that. How many of you guys have ever rejoiced in your suffering? Anyone in here besides me ever faced a, 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 a suffering? Yeah. How many of you guys rejoiced in it? Right, so it's an odd thing to say because I'm rejoicing in my suffering. And so the first thing I would put in your notes is this, about this kingdom mission, is that he's talking about the joy of suffering. The joy of suffering. And the interesting thing is that it's not just in this little letter called Colossae, but this, this idea is all throughout the scriptures and especially in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 5, Paul is also the author, and he says that he, he, he tells you, he goes, you guys should rejoice in your suffering. Why? And he says, rejoice in your suffering because when you face this type of suffering for the kingdom mission, for doing good, it actually formulates character within you. It forges character within you. 
How many of you guys think that if you live a, a life of a silver spoon, that you're going to grow to maturity? No, you're going to grow to be a brat, an adult brat, right? No, going through some stuff, having some life experience, facing some struggle and enduring, it actually is shaping. And so he says there's this joy that we should rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because it builds character in Romans. And in James, Jesus' little brother says that rejoice when you face trials of all kinds. You guys ever rejoice when you when you when you go through a hard time? A trial? Trial is like it, it's hard. Right? He goes, no, rejoice in your trials because again it faces, it builds you up into maturity. Or think about in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12. He's talking about Jesus. He makes this profound statement. He says, For the joy that was set before Jesus. He endured the cross. Think about that. He rejoiced in his suffering. Jesus, when he faced the cross, rejoiced in his suffering. So why, would we ask, where does this joy come from? He says he endures the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross, and neither should you enjoy suffering. You should enjoy the suffering. It's not the suffering that you enjoy, but it's knowing that your suffering is not in vain, that God never wastes a hurt, that when you go through these hard things, when you go through these struggles, it is producing something. And so Paul in this letter said, I, I mean, I'm in prison, so I couldn't come to Colossae and plant that church, but I'm, I'm praising God because Epaphras came to me, and then the Holy Spirit said, Epaphras, to you, and though, even though I can't be there, this thing is still spreading, and I get to be a part of it, and I'm rejoicing in the suffering that I have because of what it's producing, that God is still at work, and I get to be a part of it. How many of you guys think if you were on a, to give you a sports analogy, right, if you were on a, a football team, or a baseball team, or a soccer team, or a cornhole team, or a debate team, right? Whatever team you're on, and just think about this. Would you rejoice in the, in, the, in the glory ring more if you sat on the bench the whole time or if you played the whole game? If you got to be the one that was in the game. I mean, if you're like walking into the locker room and you're like picture ready because you have no grass stains, there's not as much glory as you walk in there, your head's all janked, your grass stains all over the place, you got a little limp and a black eye, and maybe like you need to see the doctor, and you're like high-fiving with the one hand you have, that's glory if you know athletics. Not, not that you didn't get touched or didn't get used. There's a joy in being a part of the team. I think that's what Paul's talking about. So there's this joy that comes in suffering. And Paul knows that his suffering is serving a greater purpose. And it is part of this kingdom mission. And so he's like, I rejoice in this suffering. And then he, he describes it a little bit better. He says, and it's about stewarding. He said, my mission, my part is the role is to be a steward. So Paul says, I toil and I struggle with all of his energy that I powerfully, but I, I, I toil and I struggle, he says. That's the language he uses. And then he says this. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Now, this word minister, in the Greek, it's diakonos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but here's what I do know. Diakonos is sometimes translated minister like it is here. And sometimes in the New Testament, it's translated servant. 
And sometimes it's translated deacon. It's the same word, minister or deacon or servant. I don't, I don't know if you, if you know this, but here's what I do know about this. There is nothing glamorous about this word. This is not a sexy word. To be a servant was not something that you would have put on your business card. And, and people would, you would have wrote CEO or president. Paul could have wrote, I'm an apostle. But in this moment, he chooses this lowly word that he's rejoicing in. I'm your minister. I'm your servant. I'm the one that's willing to get dirty and work and, and be in prison. Because that's what God's called me to do, and I'm excited about it. I'm this diakonos. And his mission is to passionately point people to Jesus. He goes, in him we proclaim. I want to passionately point people to Jesus, and I want to make you, bring you everybody, everybody. I want to bring them to maturity. I want to teach them to follow this Jesus and to become more like this Jesus. I want to teach them to be his disciples, to passionately point people to Jesus and to make him their disciples who are making other people their disciples. That's his whole mission. And stewarding is about leveraging your life for the kingdom. Being a steward is about everything that you have, leveraging it towards this kingdom mission. And Paul's like, I'm just stoked that I get to be a part of this thing. Now, I can't be with you. I wish I was. I mean, I'm jealous of Epaphras who gets to be with you. I can't be with you, but I'm just stoked to be a part of this. It's almost like I'm just, I'm just happy to be the one who holds the door open in this thing. I'm just happy to be the one who pours the half and half in the container out there. I'm just happy to be the one who gets to put the, 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 the curtain up there. I'm just happy to be the one who gets to, whatever it is, that I'm just happy to be a part of it. I don't care what my job is. I'm just happy to be a part of it. Because my life is about stewarding. It's about him. It's not about me. That's the idea of stewarding is leveraging what you have for the kingdom. He's just stoked to be a part of it. And then he says in letter C, he goes, and it's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that is really doing this work, that is enabling me. The empowerment of the Spirit. In, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's also the author. If you read through the New Testament, you'll find this guy Paul's a big deal. Writes a lot of letters. Spends a lot of time in prison, so I guess he has a lot of time on his hands. And he uses it. He leverages it. For the glory of God, not as a pity party, but as a letter-writing party. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says like this. He goes, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? Isn't that interesting? You don't have to be what anyone else is. He goes, no, I'm just being me. By the grace of God, I'm just Paul. Not trying to be Peter, not trying to be John, not trying to be Epaphras, not trying to be Brittany. I'm just being me. Right? He goes, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So N.T. Wright commentates about these two passages together. And he says this. He says, Paul does not go about his work half-heartedly. Hoping that grace will fill in the gaps which he is too lazy to work at himself. Nor, however, does he imagine that it is all up to him. So unless he burns himself out with restless, anxious toil, nothing will be achieved. Right? 
There's this idea in the Bible of this work hard and rest with faith rhythm. We work hard and we rest. How do you do that? Because we work hard and we trust God with the results. If the results were up to us, we'd be up all night, right? We'd be up all night stressed out because we'll never be able to get to the, to the ends of all that needs to be done. Or we could just say, I'm just going to work hard with the, the stuff that God has given to me. And then I'm going to rest well, knowing that God is really the one who's making all of this happen. We rest, but we work hard, and we rest. Which side do you lean on? Are you lazy? You don't work hard? Or are you burnt out and stressed? Because you work hard, and you feel like it's all up to me. I remember Augustine, one of the early church fathers, says that we should pray like it's 100% on God. And we should work as if it's up to us. So Paul is saying, I'm working hard and I can't be there, but I'm rejoicing because this thing is still working. And even the work that I'm doing is the Holy Spirit doing it. And guess what? When Epaphras got saved, the Holy Spirit went to him. And now the Holy Spirit is with you. He showed up with you. And so he's rejoicing in the fact that there's this joy of this suffering that gets to be a part of it. He understands his role as the steward and that it's the Holy Spirit's job to empower him and to, and, to, and to make it happen. So this is great, beautiful picture. And then we get to this part in here where, where it's the message of the king. I call it the message of the king. So he has this stewarding, this role. He's excited about it. The biggest part of his mission is to tell people about Jesus, the message of the king. And so he says it like this, in him we proclaim. Wouldn't that be an awesome? I mean, when we, one of these days we're going to get passionately pointing people to Jesus and teaching them to be and make disciples. That's a good vision statement. But I wish I had thought of this one first. In him we proclaim. That's our mission statement. That's what he's saying. He's like, I'm all about Jesus, telling people about Jesus. I told, I told Epaphras about Jesus, and then he told everyone else about Jesus, and then you can tell everyone else about Jesus. And the cool thing is, it's like these seeds are getting planted, and actually these beautiful things are growing out of it. And he's like, your church is one of those. Your church is one of those. And so the message of the king, in him we proclaim... And what he says specifically in this passage about Jesus is this, that Jesus perfectly reveals who God is. Jesus perfectly reveals who God is. And he says it like this. He says, the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. A lot of commentators wonder what that is. What's the mystery that was hidden? What is this mystery he's talking about that was hidden, but now it's been revealed through Jesus? A couple of ideas, and I'm not 100% sure which one exactly it is, but they all end with the same main thing in him we proclaim. Some people believe that what he's talking about, this mystery that was hidden, was something very Jewish. Now, Paul was very Jewish. Paul would have understood this thing. But the Jewish people would have believed that one day the Messiah would come back. And when the Messiah came back, before he reigned as king, there would be a time called the Messianic Woe. Where there would be a time of suffering for his people. Before the, before, and so some people believe that possibly what Paul is saying when he says 
uh, in the first part, he says, and, and I've made up for the affliction that is lost. And so maybe, maybe he's saying that I get to be a part of this messianic woe season that is supposed to happen before Jesus is king. The reason why I would say I don't know that I think that's the best answer is because although Paul understood this stuff perfectly, the messianic woes, probably the people that he's talking to don't. They're not Jewish. So what is the mystery you might look at it like this. When the, when the, when the, when the Jewish people were, were thinking about the Messiah, they knew the Messiah was coming, but they had a lot of questions about what it would exactly look like. What will it look like when the Messiah comes? There was some mystery in it. And for the Gentiles, they, we all do this. We try to figure out, like, what are the core answers of our life? Why is there a God, right? How did everything get here? How did I get here? Why am I here? Why do bad things happen to good people? All of these questions, we would put them in a category called what? Mysteries. And, and perhaps what he's saying is that when Jesus showed up, the answer to our biggest question was revealed. When Jesus showed up, he was the mystery. He was he was. If we were to ever say, like, I, if, why doesn't God just make himself known to us? No, when Jesus showed up, he did. He came in the flesh. He made himself known to us in Jesus. The mystery that had been hidden for ages to all peoples shows up in this form of an actual person that they could have looked at. They could have heard him teach. And his name was Jesus. And not only that. The mystery would have been not just that the Messiah was now here, the Jewish Messiah is now here, but he's not only here for the, Gen for the Jewish people. He's also here for the Gentiles. He's here for everybody. The mystery that had been hidden to the Jews has now been proclaimed to everybody. Jesus is here. The Messiah is here. The King is here with this new kingdom. In Colossians 2.9, a little bit before this, Paul says, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God who showed up and dwelt among us so that we could see him, hear him. We have, we have people who were there and they wrote down everything that they saw. Uh, eyewitness account witnesses. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. First Timothy, Paul says it like this. First Timothy 3.16, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This Jesus is this mystery that's been revealed in Hebrews 1.3, the author says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he holds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus perfectly reveals who God is. And we see that this message is for us. And it's this, that Jesus qualifies us for an inheritance. That Jesus has shown up. He's the mystery that has been hidden for ages, but is now here. And what does he do? He qualifies us for an inheritance. And he says that in Colossians 1, 12 through 14. He's already said that. We studied it a couple weeks ago. It says, giving thanks to the Father 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So what does this mean? This means that for those who hear the message that Jesus is Savior and King, and they, and they receive him as their Savior and place him on the throne in their life as their King, for those people, they've been actually transferred from the old kingdom of darkness they didn't even know they were in, and they've been put on a whole new team, the kingdom of God. They've been transferred to the kingdom of God. And all those who are transferred to be the kingdom of God, they actually get adopted into his family. It's family language. And they get to inherit everything that all of the children of God get to inherit. They become these adopted kids that get the full inheritance of God. Namely, relationship with Jesus that will last for eternity. And so, in this section, what does Paul describe it as? He says, this is the hope of glory. The hope of glory. This hope that one day will be caught up in the glory of God. There was a time, and I'm hoping through the Dodgers we're going to face this again. <laughs> there was this time, a couple different times. One with the Lakers. Remember when the Lakers were good? High five for the Lakers back in the day when they were good. It happened a few times. The Lakers were good once upon a time. The, the Kings, if you're a hockey fan, they were good. Right? I know it's hard to believe. They were good. Now... Does that mean? That felt a little harsh. Are you a Kings fan? A little bit. All right. Well, you can go back in time. You may have up into the hope of glory. Now, here's, here's my point. When the Lakers were good, let's say Lakers. Lakers are good. There was a season in Los Angeles where we as a city were caught up in glory. And I don't know if you remember this, but it was like this. You would put a flag on your car to signify that you were a part of this glory. And you would drive around town, and there's like these flags, and you get a 7-Eleven for $15, and it signified you're a part of the glory. And you would drive around, and it was amazing how unifying this was and glorifying this was to be a part of it. Now, here's the thing. You never made one free throw. You know, neither did Shaq, right? But, but here's the thing. You weren't a part of this, and yet you get to share in the glory. You get part of the inheritance just because... You're from Los Angeles. So you would drive around town, and everyone's fine. And normally, you just drive around town, and you get you complain about how busy it is. And someone cuts you off. But if someone cuts you off, and they also have the flag, it doesn't even matter. You're just like, yeah, Lakers, right? This is the idea of being caught up in glory. And so what he's saying is that you all have this inheritance, this future glory. And it won't be a stupid flag for $15 on a car, it will be Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and everybody, when you show up to heaven, there will be multitudes, countless, it says in Revelation, and we will all be there, and you're going to be like, "Woo, Jesus, I'm a part of this thing, the hope of glory. Does that make sense? So yeah, Paul's excited about it. Why wouldn't you be? And so he goes, he qualifies you, the hope of glory, the mystery that's been revealed, it's Jesus is the answer, and he offers the hope of glory, eternal glory, being a part of this thing. And he says, the offer is for everyone. He says it three times, because 
you know, in case you didn't hear it, the first two. He goes, him we complain, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone. Probably not me, though. Everyone who receives Jesus is on an equal playing field. This was one of the things that was wacky in the first century, is they had a huge social structure where if you're rich, or if you're poor, or if you're from a different area, they were like very, they weren't like diverse like we try to be, right? They were very like, like, like who you are, what your last name was, how much money you make, all that stuff mattered. And then the church came along and they said, no, now none of that matters. Matter of fact, in this letter, Paul, you're going to see Paul writes, and he, and he talks about Onesimus. And he's talking about Onesimus to this guy Philemon, which is where the church meets at. Well, Onesimus was a slave. Guess whose slave he was? Philemon's. Before they were Christians. And Onesimus ran away. He got his freedom by running away. That's not good. You're a slave, you know? Well, I, guess, I don't know. It's not good in that society. It's against the law. And Paul writes this letter called Philemon, and he basically says, hey, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, but he's saved now. So treat him like he's saved. Don't treat him like you did before. Receive him like a brother. Because it doesn't matter anymore. Because everyone, 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 it's for everyone who believes. So that's what Jesus, that's what Paul's saying in this letter. And then, and then we move on. We move on to Colossians 2. I want to start that today because it, it ties together with what he's saying. So it, the letter goes on. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have, I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my, me face to face. So if you looked on a map, you'd see Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. That's really a city called Hierapolis, although there was an earthquake that was wiped out. That's why we don't have that today. But you have, you have Colossae. Laodicea and Hierapolis. And he's like, hey, I've been struggling for you in your little region and for everyone that's heard this. All you guys who think that no one knows who you are, we know who you are. And I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the fullness of assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. It says it right there. That's the mystery. It's Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. So he's going to talk a little bit about Kingdom people who are mature. And that's what we're going to transfer in. Kingdom people who are mature. And I would just say this. There we've gotten this trend in the church, kind of global, in our, in, our, in, our, in our recent years, where we like to talk about a church that is authentic. You guys have heard that before? Well, that's a real authentic church. Or I'm a, what is that? I'm an authentic Christianity. You know what the Bible doesn't talk about very often? An authentic church. You know what the Bible talks about? A mature Christian. 
not an authentic Christian. And, and sometimes there's, there, there's some nuance here I just want to talk about for a second. Now, if you're not authentic, here's what you do. You start to pursue authenticity. I just want to be real, right? I just want to be real. And so what starts to creep in is if you've got a foul mouth, I'm a foul mouth Christian. I'm just keeping it real, being authentic. Isn't that the goal? No. Are you being mature? That's what the Bible talks about. Are you being mature? So there's this guy, Eugene Peterson. He's a great pastor. And he says this. He says, the goal for every Christian should be congruency, not authenticity. Congruency. If you're a math person and you, and you study uh, geometry, you know that what's a congruent angle? Two congruent angles, they're the same. Congruency is sameness. And the idea that he talks about here of congruency is that what you proclaim, what you say you believe, is congruent with who you are. And that's what maturity looks like, growing so that we're becoming more congruent with who Jesus wants us to be. If Jesus is our king, and we're his disciples, and we're becoming more and more like him, our goal should be congruency. We want to be congruent so that we are authentic, Authentically more like Jesus, not authentically more like whatever it is we think we are. So he says the Christian life is the lifelong practice of, 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 of hemming in the, or, or, or hending the details of congruency. I'm sorry, of attending to the details of congruency. If you guys haven't been at our church, I love messing up quotes. <laughs> now, kingdom people are mature. And so he gives you three things. He says, what you should be focusing on is a, a faith that is firm. A faith that is firm. Biblical faith is more than just what you believe. It's not just about believing all of the right things. But biblical faith is, is does how you act, does how you act, is it congruent with what you believe? So it's the way that I act, I act that way because of what I believe. Because of my faith. So when he's talking about faith here, and this foundation of faith, he's saying, is what you believe transforming you to be more and more like Jesus? And is it coming across in the way that you live? So he says you have this firm faith. That's what, I'm, that's what he's praying for them. I want you to become mature. I'm praying for the firmness of your faith in Christ. Faith's about how you live because of what you believe. And then he says, and we'll have the worship team come back up. And then he says, and I want you to be filled with courage and hope. I want you to be filled with courage and hope. And he says it like this. I'm praying that your hearts would be encouraged. Do you guys know what the word encourage means? I just want to invite you to go like this if you need courage. If you need courage for whatever it is right here. The word encourage literally means to pour courage into you. I want to pour courage into you. If you don't know if you do that, when you're encouraging someone, what you're doing is you're pouring courage into them. You need some courage, Otto? I'm going to pour some courage into you. I'm going to encourage you. That's what he's saying. I want to pour courage into you. I want you to be encouraged. You're going to need courage. And I want you to be filled with courage and hope. So I'm encouraging you. I'm pouring courage into you. And I'm talking about this hope. In Hebrews 6.19, it talks about hope this way. That we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A hope 
that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. There's this hope. And what is the hope? It's the hope of glory. It's the hope that now we can be a part. Our church is supposed to be about that Lakers flag glory, but not the Lakers flag. It's supposed to be about Jesus. Jesus should bind us together. When we see each other walk in, you should just be encouraged by seeing each other, just like when you were driving down the street and everybody seeing just a sea of yellow flags. And just, it was just something about that. Or have you ever been to a concert where there's just lots of people, you're like next to each other, and everyone's voice is all singing, and have you ever just felt that emotion, just the feeling of just like, like it's almost like, like this, 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 like, this like intense, like being a part of something, glory, just like, or if you're at a sports game, and you're just like, everybody's cheering, Dodgers, 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 and you just want that guy to get a hit so bad, and everybody, you don't even know these people, all these people over here, and all these people over here, I don't know you, I don't know you, you like the Dodgers, I like the Dodgers, high five, we're best friends, Dodgers, right? That's what the church is supposed to look like, but it's supposed to be Jesus as our glory, and it should be this anchor, because guess what? Life is going to try to pull at you. And if you don't have an anchor, you're just going to be drifting all over. You know what happens to a boat? You bought a brand new boat, you put it in the ocean, and you didn't put an anchor or tie it to the dock. What would happen to that? You would no longer have a boat. <laughs> you need that. It anchors, he says it anchors your soul. Why do you need your soul anchored? Because life's hard. You need encouragement poured into you and hope to anchor you. But we got to just always remember that there's this bigger picture, and in the letter he's going there. In the letter he's going there, he's going to say, set your minds on things above. Because sometimes the things down here, it just are hard. So have courage, and have hope, and have faith. And then he says, and then I want you to be united together in love. Knit together in love. Any of you guys knit in here? We talked a lot about sports, so I've got to round this out. we got to go. We're going from ESPN to Pinterest right now. Right? I don't know if you knit. I've never knitted before, but I have a lot of respect for knitters. I have a lot of respect for knitters. Here's what I know about knitting. It takes a lot of talent that I don't have. And patience. It's a beautiful art form to knit together something, right? It's interesting that Paul uses this idea in Colossae, and Colossae is known as a textile industry where, where they would make clothes. So he goes, I want you to be knit together. Just think about knitting together. For, like, if we're knit together, what knits you together? I don't know how the process, like, I don't know how to do that, but here's also what I know about something that's knit together well is strong. You take a knit sweater and you try to rip it apart, you can't rip it apart. If it's, if it's knit together well. So he goes, I want you to be knit together, but how? With love. love. Let love knit you together in this area that knows all about knitting. He goes, look, you know that thing that you, all, you guys all know about? I want you to do that. But with love. I want you to be knit together with love. United together. It's this faith and this hope and this love that's making us more congruent because that's exactly who Jesus is. And he's saying, I love 
Love, 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 just whatever part I get to play in making that happen. I just want to be more like Paul, don't you? I just want to say, whatever job God has for me, I just want to, I, I want, I'll do whatever is most useful for the kingdom. Right? I just want to be a steward of this kingdom because I want to be a part, I want, when, I get, when I get to heaven and we're all in that glory, I want to be like, I want to walk into heaven. I don't know about you, I want to limp into heaven. I don't want to run into heaven. I want to barely be making it Jesus dragging me across because I got some broken limbs from playing so hard. I want my robe to be so grass-stained because I was sliding headfirst into home, right? I want to slide headfirst into home. Barely make it, right? Like slide, go around the tag, and have Jesus be like, say, welcome home. That's how I want to enter heaven. I don't know about you if you want to sit in your rocking chair, smoke your pipe or whatever, and, and wait for him to come back. But man, I want to run hard. I want everyone to know about Jesus. And there's joy that comes in that, he's saying. And the message is simple. It's all about him. And it's faith. It's let your life be congruent with, with, with what we preach. And remember that you, you can have courage and an anchor that's on, a, on something way more solid than anything that could happen this week. It's a solid hope. And remember love. Because love is what keeps us strong. Loving each other is super important. There's a couple of thoughts as we prepare for worship. I want you to just to go on this journey with me for a moment. I want you to think about all that Jesus went through so you could know God. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. He came from heaven to earth. He was not very popular to his own, own people. Matter of fact, they, they hated him so much they wanted him dead. One of his own betrayed him. At the end, he was he would, he, he, he had crowds of 5,000 and he would preach this message. At the end, he was down to 11. That's a pretty good percentage, right? If you go from 5,000 to 11, that's not good church growth. He goes to 11. And then he dies on this cross. All with the joy that was set before him. Think about all that Jesus went through so you can know God. And then ask yourself this question. Do you want to know God? Is that just something that consumes you during the week? What can I do today to just, just enjoy God and to get to know him more? How can I be a part of getting to know God? Is that a desire that you have? I want to know this God. And then think about all the people who went out of their way to share Jesus with you. Think about all the people who went out of their way to share Jesus with you. And then I would ask you this. Do you desire to share Jesus with others? Do you desire to know Jesus and to make him known to others? Pretty good life plan. I just want to know Jesus. I just want to make him known. And as we prepare for worship, I would just ask you one more thing that Paul brings up in this letter. Would you in this moment, as we get together... This isn't a moment when we get to church. This isn't a moment where you, you get through your, your week and you stumble into church. This is a moment where we gather and we build each other up before encouraging to each other. We remember our hope. We remember our faith. And we prepare for the week ahead. This isn't the end of the week. This is the beginning of the week. 
how we start our week. And so as we start our week in worship, hopefully the whole week is filled with worship. But I just want to invite you to choose. I don't, I'm not saying you have to feel it. To choose. To think about how great God is. And to stand when we worship. And to praise his name because he's always worthy of praise. I'm asking us to choose to worship him and to ask him to prepare us for worship all week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.